Welcome to a 2019 Kessler Foundation Spinal Cord Injury Grand Rounds podcast featuring guest speakers Christopher Sanigliaro from the Veterans Administration National Center for the Medical Consequences of Spinal Cord Injury and Jane Donovan, MD, from Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. They are presenting lower extremity bone loss in persons with a spinal cord injury. Mr. Sernigliaro presents first, followed by Dr. Donovan. This presentation was recorded, produced, and edited by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Thursday, July 2019 at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey. It was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Spinal Cord Injury System, It was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Spinal Cord Injury System, which is supported by a grant from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. Nidler is a center within the Administration for Community Living, Department of Health and Human Services. For podcasts of past SCI Grand Rounds presentations, be sure and visit our SoundCloud channel. The link is listed in the description of this podcast. Let's listen in as Jean Zanka, PhD, Senior Research Scientist at Kessler Foundation, welcomes our guests. I'm pleased to welcome two presenters today. Now, Dr. Gail Forrest was supposed to join us today, but was called away due to a commitment for another research study. Um, But her colleagues will be very ably presenting the work that they've done together. Um, We'll first be joined by Christopher Sinigliaro, who is the Senior Research Coordinator for the VA National Center on Medical Consequences of Spinal Cord Injury, which is based at the James J. Peters VA in Bronx, New York, but has a satellite laboratory here. And we're very glad to collaborate with them. We'll also be joined by Dr. Jane Donovan, who's the Clinical Chief of Out patient SCI services here at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation at West Orange. So with that, I welcome them both to the podium. For the past 20 years, I've had the privilege to work on bone loss projects in persons with spinal cord injury under the direction of uh, Dr. Bauman, who is our center's director, who is here today, as well as Dr. Kirschbaum, who we all know. And I guess today we'd like to get started with... um, you know, some real preliminary stuff, but it can really lead to a much bigger story in the future about the intervention we've been doing in this area. So we all know these advanced training interventions, um, standing neuromuscular electrical stimulation, uh, exoskeleton assisted walking, um, but behind all that great training and interventions, there's been this. I know, exciting. (laughs) And that is, bone mineral density at the total hip and around the knee region. And the reason why that has been such um, an area of focus and so important for us for close to 20 years in measuring that, in that we've had to exclude people based on the criteria you see on aerial bone mineral density of 0.6 grams per squared centimeter at the distal femur, which is the box right above the knee, or at the proximal tibia, which is the box right below the knee, or the BMD of the total hip region. Now that, we have a little bit more information because we've been able to figure out um, a good standardized score known as a T-score. It's expressing BMD um, as a comparison to young, healthy, able-bodied individuals of negative 3.5. And the reason for all of this exclusion criteria and everything is we don't want that. Okay, and you know, I feel very proud to say that in all with all this research, 
we haven't seen a single long bone fracture from all of our exoskeleton work and our FES uh, standing work. And we feel in part it's because we've been very conservative. Now, this does not at all tell um, most of the story. We, we really have a very large abyss of knowledge, um, but we are making incredible progress. And if anything, we've been too conservative with this criteria, but, you know, in clinical trials, safety is, is paramount. It's important to understand more than anything that bone mineral density is not fracture, right? It's a surrogate for fracture risk, okay? So these uh, standards, bone mineral density standards, are at least in the able-bodied population done um, in epidemiological studies where they look at people fracture over time because of the prospective cohort nature and they can relate a specific BMD and a standard I score to that fracture time. Um, it's always ideal to do these studies in a prospective manner. And in SCI, unfortunately, all we have is prevalent fracture data, where we were able to obtain BMD after the fracture had happened from medical records, um, sometimes that we couldn't obtain scans till years after the fracture had occurred, um, which is why it's not even close to the reliability we need in um, to really understand fracture threshold and fracture risk as far as how well BMD is the surrogate of it. So I'd like to uh, briefly go over immobilization osteoporosis, which is a unique form of osteoporosis where a reduction in gravitational forces um, below the level causes resorption of bone below the level of lesion while bone above the level of lesion remains relatively unchanged. Okay, but more than that, um, as you can see, <clears throat> the severity of this bone loss is dependent upon the degree of neurological impairment. So the greater the paralysis, the more motor complete that someone is, the greater bone resorption we see after injury. And the underlying uh, theoretical construct for this bone loss is all based on the mechanics that theory of bone remodeling, um, in which muscle activity is reduced to such an extent to cause strains to, to fall below the bone remodeling threshold, okay? And once that happens, the adaptive process goes into disuse mode, and there's an uncoupling of the balance between bone formation and bone resorption, and bone resorption uh, takes over and a tremendous amount of bone is lost. So cross-sectional studies looking at bone loss after SCI um, pretty much say the same thing, where we take any uh, small cohort um, of individuals and we compare them to an, uh, a small, small cohort of SCI and compare them to their able-bodied age-matched um, equivalent, we find that there's a, about approximately a 50% loss in BMD at the distal femur and about a 70% loss in BMD at the proximal tibia. Now, when I say it's the same story, I mean it's severe. All the reports you see are severe. This, these numbers are probably the most severe um, we've seen in the cross-sectional uh, uh, cohort studies reported, um, but it goes to show you that there's quite a bit of variability in bone loss in after spinal cord injury. 
Now, longitudinal studies show um, a slightly different story, but still an extreme bone loss with a 27% loss to the distal femur at four months. That increases to about 30 to 35% at 14 months. Now, in our longitudinal work here, this is pretty much what we see. So, and th these are uh, landmark studies. It's also important to understand that bone loss after spinal cord injury is um, the primary driver is time since injury. Now, <clears throat> to the right, um, a classic work from uh, Dr. Bauman, uh, before my time, uh, looked at a monozygotic twin model that controlled for genetic variability in aging and looked at the intrapaired difference scores um, of an SCI and their able-bodied twin. And in this model, which shows more of a chronic model, there is a linear loss of bone. So bone is lost well into uh, um, um, advanced age and the later stages of spinal cord injury. However, there is this commonly held belief, another classic study by Dr. Esser, that bone loss seems to steady state. Um, some reports show two to three years. This classic study um, showed about four years um, at the, uh, trabe in trabecular BMD, at the femur, as well as at the tibia. However, recent work uh, that we uh, published in 2018 shows a slightly different story. Um, we broke individuals up into epochs of time since injury, um, a fairly large cohort of about 105 spinal cord injured individuals, and we found that bone loss continued into the second decade after spinal cord injury. Um, we think these findings were very much based upon uh, a, a good sample size, as well as the placement, um, our DEXA methodology, which I'll go into briefly, um, and where we were able to measure bone at the distal femur and proximal tibia. But this shows that you know bone loss continues to happen into the second decade after injury, into the chronic stages, which is very important when we think about uh, therapeutic interventions. And we also saw, again, compared to a smaller able-bodied age match cohort, that the bone loss was approximately between 40 and 50%. Now, just a brief uh, overview of DEXA. DEXA is not a true measure of BMD. What DEXA does is measure bone mineral content uh, per ash weight as determined for each pixel. And then it counts the number of pixels per pixel size, and that BMC is expressed in the ratio of the given area for a density. So it's far from perfect, but it definitely gives us um, a lot of information. Um, BMD is predictive of fracture risk, but not as important as history of fracture. Um, it's a quasi-direct method to measure aerial bone mineral density, but it's not true volumetric BMD, which we obtained from CT scan, which we also do here at our center, um, but that's an entirely different presentation. 
So the osteoporosis bone loss diagnosis criteria were set by the World Health Organization and reinforced by NHANES data and the current um, guidelines by the Bone Densitometry Organization known as the International Society for Clinical Densitometry shows that a T-score greater than or equal to negative 2.5 standard deviations is the BMD at which many fractures seem to occur in the World Health Organization epidemiological studies. And when I say many, um, approximately 33% of fractures occur at this BMD. Um, one thing important is that this is the classic information. These are the, the standards. But you know, more recent information has shown that in postmenopausal osteoporosis that many fractures happen below that, that T-score, right? And many individuals that have uh, T-scores of negative three or even greater um, never fracture at all. So again, it's far from perfect, but it definitely helps add to the relative uh, contraindications to and, and treatment for bone loss. Um, then we have, so that is, that criteria is in postmenopausal women and men over 50. Uh, low bone mass for a given age is also very well documented now, but that is expressed as a Z-score, and that is used for premenopausal women and men under 50. And more important than BMD and T-score is that a history of fragility fracture always means osteoporosis. So the regions of interest for the proximal femur and lumbar spine, these are very well um, understood. This is what's measured in postmenopausal women and men over 50. The lumbar spine, T1 to T4, the 33% forearm region, and the total hip. Now, I, we do not use the forearm or the lumbar spine for many different reasons, but the hip has always been somewhat reliable for us. However, it's not really the area we want to diagnose osteoporosis in spinal cord injury because the data has shown the few fracture studies, and I say few, approximately a dozen, that the regions where individuals fracture are at the distal femur and proximal tibia. All right? Now, individuals with spinal cord injury do fracture at the hip, just less often. All right? And what's the reason for this? Yes, bone loss is greatest as you go more distal throughout the limb, but it's more uh, circumstances, right? Because the um, incident, from, uh, the cause of fracture, fall from a wheelchair or um, uh, some type of movement, uh, fast velocity movement, spinning in a chair and banging the knee on a desk makes that distal femur proximal tibia area the region most vulnerable, which is why we, it's seen most often. So the question that we asked a long time ago was why not just use the hip to diagnose osteoporosis? Well, in this same cohort of 105, we looked at the relationship of total hip BMD and BMD around the distal femur and proximal tibia. And as you can see, um, it's very well correlated but it definitely doesn't account for all of the variants, all right? So again, but very strong correlation. However, when you plot that out into a Bland-Altman analysis, you can see that in, as the T-scores get even lower, the variability gets even greater. 
So there's much more variance as you're dealing with individuals that have much more bone loss. So we may get someone in that T-score at the hip looks okay, and then at the knee, there's absolutely shows that they have absolutely no uh, no no bone mineral density, um, or it's very very diminished. So uh, assessment of BMD by DEXA, this is distal femur proximal tibia. Uh, most studies acquire this with uh, various clinical software applications, um, the, not the research software applications that we currently use here at Kessler, but that is changing. Um, and this becomes a, a question that I field from clinics all the time because people don't know how to measure a knee. So this is a, a very big thing we've been working through. This investigational software um, at, at still is only available at a few time, a few laboratories, and the biggest limitation of explaining uh, what BMD at the knee means is that remember that 0.6 grams per square centimeter is great to use, but it's not a standard I score at the knee, right? It doesn't control for differences in the densitometer calibrations, and it doesn't control for differences. In, in quite a few other things. So a standardized score would be great around the knee like we have it at the hip. And that's something that we're currently working on as well. And these are the different regions of interest that we currently use. Um, the, like I said, the spine, the forearm, the hip, that's been nailed down real well. But at the knee, we're still developing the exact place to call the distal femur and the proximal tibia. Um, the area with, that I have circled is the area that we tend to uh, agree upon the most right now because there's very strong validations uh, data to supporting it against CT scan, multi-slice CT. So it's, these are the regions that we've been using. Again, another big advancement. So cutoff BMD values for fracture. Um, the fracture threshold is the BMD where fracture begins and the breakpoint is where the majority of fractures occur. Um, and again, the work from Garland, 0.592 or 0.6. However, like I said, when you take that same prevalent fracture data and you add a slightly different cohort, uh, Dr. Garland found a BMD of about 0.78. So there's quite a bit of variability in, in what that number is right now. Um, there's been other studies that have shown, prevalent fracture studies that occur um, are more recent, that fracture occurs at a much lower BMD of about 0.45 at the distal femur and 0.37 at the proximal tibia. And then we have uh, even PQCT, which like I said, that is a more advanced uh, uh, three-dimensional measurement of measuring true volumetric bone mineral density. There's a whole different set of numbers for that. So briefly, I'd like to just cover um, our new area of interest, which is BMD of the calcaneus. Um, this is due to our concern for calcaneal fracture from exoskeleton walking studies. Um, the calcaneus has the distinction of being mostly trabecular bone, um, 90%, and it has an extremely rapid rate of loss after injury. Um, and it's even been shown, again, this has uh, um, been known for some time, that that loss is even greater than at the distal femur and proximal tibia. Now, DEXA is not a qualitative um, tool to look at bone. 
Uh, however, you can look at the image. And just to show you, I, this is fascinating. If you, uh, to the left, we have the, an individual with SCI, and to the right, um, an age-matched, able-bodied individual. We see that it is completely washed out the calcaneus, all right? And that you could see the brightness of the trabecular bone in the able-bodied individual, and the BMD is quite different. It's about 0.3 uh, compared to 0.92. So it's, it's much lower. So this is all the uh, groundwork now we're doing in trying to develop methodologies to measure um, bone in the foot because this is a new area of concern. And as you can see, when you look at those mean values, um, the, when the total calcaneus or just the small trabecular area within the calcaneus that the individuals with SCI, again, a small sample of 10, um, had significantly lower be, uh, bone mineral density. And we have some uh, unique uh, review articles that go uh, very deep. One of them is ours into um, measurement of the distal femur and proximal tibia and measurement of bone in people with spinal cord injury that I'd be happy to send you. And now, uh, Dr. Donovan would like to uh, present her half of the presentation. All right. Hi, everyone. How are you? All right, and thank you, Chris. Um, so we're going to switch gears here a little bit and um, take all the really fascinating, interesting uh, information that Chris presented, and I'm going to try and boil it down a little bit to how does this apply to us um, as clinicians as we're taking care of patients with spinal cord injury. Um, so I will start with one major caveat. I am not a bone health expert, um, unlike Chris, um, but, so, you know, but I have been fortunate to um, work with some experts in the field throughout my training and my career and have learned a lot from them. And I also care for a lot of patients that come to me on a daily basis and say, Doc, what am I doing about my bone mineral density? Um, what am I doing about my bone health? So I'm going to try and go through my approach um, at this time with it. And at the end, we can certainly take any questions. Um, so first, a very quick slide on fracture. Um, to me, this is the nuts and bolts, and this is why I care about bone health so much. Um, it's because, unfortunately, fractures are so common in our patients with spinal cord injury. We know that studies have shown um, up to 25 to 40%, 46% of individuals with chronic spinal cord injury um, sustain a, a fracture, and this is probably an underestimate because it's underreported. Mean time to first fractures about nine years after injury, and as Chris told us, the most common areas of fracture in this population are the distal femur, the proximal tibia, so essentially around the knee. Um, most of these fractures are, by definition, fragility fractures. They occur with forces that aren't strong enough to fracture a good, healthy bone and tend to occur during activities of daily living, like transfers um, uh, or um, running into a wall from a wheelchair. Um, we see it all the time. Um, and not only are fractures after spinal cord injury a problem in and of themselves, but then when you think about all um, the complications that can come from their increased immobility, um, DVTs, uh, pressure-related injuries, um, uh, which can occur in over 50% of the cases, um, complications overall, um, it really is a major, major issue. 
So how do we approach this? Um, assessment of bone health after spinal cord injury is actually something that varies tremendously among clinicians in terms of screening, prevention, and treatment of bone loss. Um, Morse et al. did a study about 10 years ago where they looked at VA practitioners caring for individuals with spinal cord injury, and only about 60% of those individuals caring for spinal cord injury even did any assessment at all of bone health uh, for their spinal cord patients. So why is this happening? Well, I think clinically, um, as much as the field is advancing, there's a lot of limitations for us currently. Um, so there's lack of access to appropriate diagnostic equipment. So we're so fortunate here to have um, Chris and Dr. Bauman's lab um, and the DEXA um, equipment available to be able to do assessments around the knee. But in many other hospitals, they don't have access to that. Um, the current research, there's a lot, there's lack of studies with outcome uh, being fracture. So yes, I care if bone mineral density is increasing, but what ultimately what I care about is, is that bone mineral density increasing enough to prevent fracture in my patients? And right now the literature doesn't really have that information available. Um, and then maybe most of all, um, there's limited current treatment options. So yes, I diagnose um, osteoporosis in my patient. What do I have available um, to do in terms of treatment? And some Sometimes for some clinicians, you know, that puts you at a loss. So, you know, I have this issue, but how do I treat it? Um, so what I'm going to go into next is uh, an approach um, to screening uh, and counseling of patients. And right now in my personal clinical practice, that's where most of my time is spent in terms of screening and counseling. I do refer to endocrinology at times if I think perhaps considering a medication is appropriate. And a lot of times we have a really great dialogue um, because I might know a little bit more of the spinal cord injury related research, but they deal with bone loss on a very regular basis in the general population. Um, and with that said, though, there's so much really exciting research going on. Um, I can very much looking forward to future options in terms of other ways to treat this. Um, and we are specifically not talking about treatment too much in the talk today, um, but hopefully that can be a topic of another great rounds in the near future. So um, one of the main sources that I use to help guide me um, is a paradigm proposed by uh, Dr. Craven et al., um, uh, uh, where it talks about detection and treatment of sublesional osteoporosis, in, along with the great systematic reviews that Chris showed you guys on the last slide. So how do, how do we start in terms of screening our patients for uh, bone loss? Um, the first step is uh, really looking at general risk factors for osteoporosis. And in this patient population, um, there are secondary causes of osteoporosis in addition to their immobility. So um, those are listed here, um, include things like thyroid disorder, kidney issues, um, uh, liver issues, and also uh, high-risk medications. And I think this is really important because, interestingly, up to 30% of our patients with spinal cord injury have um, an identifiable coexisting secondary cause uh, to osteoporosis. So they do definitely do occur uh, together. The next step in screening is looking for risk factors for fractures, specifically for patients with spinal cord injury. So that's a history of a prior fragility fracture, family history of fracture, uh, female gender, uh, age less than 16 at the time of diagnosis of their spinal cord injury, or increasing age, more time post-injury, specifically uh, more than 10 years, a low bone mineral density, uh, having paraplegia or motor complete spinal cord injury, and excessive alcohol use. 
Um, another potential step in terms of uh, workup for bone health um, loss uh, is laboratory workup. Um, this is not part of my routine clinical practice at this time, um, but I do know some spinal cord physiatrists that do have it as a part of their practice. Um, if needed, this would be something that I, at this point, would discuss with endocrinology. Um, uh, but I do know in some systems of care, there are people, clini clinicians um, specializing in spinal cord injury uh, and bone health who will do this workup. So again, there's measures of secondary uh, causes and also looking perhaps at some uh, biomarkers of bone turnover. And then we come to um, what we have available here um, with Chris, and th that's uh, looking at DEXA. And as he uh, very uh, eloquently said, um, unfortunately, the standard sites of DEXA measurement are, are not consistent with the most common sites of fracture after spinal cord injury. So if you have access to, to looking at bone mineral density around the knee, uh, that could be very important. Um, Craven et al. Uh, proposed a criteria for sublesional osteoporosis um, that is somewhat similar to the general population that Chris presented previously with a few minor differences. Um, so at the hip or knee, um, the z-score would be less than negative uh, two, um, but these individuals uh, uh, who are premenopausal uh, women or young men um, also should have three or more risk factors for fracture. Um, in older men and postmenopausal women, uh, hip or knee T-score less than negative 2.5, and then again in anybody, uh, people who've had a fragility fracture. And then Chris already defined for us um, the fracture threshold and the fracture breakpoint. But clinically, at least here, especially um, for our patients asking about activities and also participation in research, the fracture threshold of uh, less than 0.6 is something that we've been using very often. So with that said, in the next seven minutes or so, I'm going to try and show you in a few case examples of how I've applied this, and, and we apply this as a team. Um, many of the outpatient therapies, the therapists will probably recognize uh, some of these cases. Um, so the first patient that I'd like to present is a 39-year-old male with T9 Asia Impairment Scale A paraplegia who unfortunately fell off a ladder at work in 2016. Um, this was his first time when he presented to my outpatient clinic of him seeing a spinal cord uh, physiatrist um, uh, and uh, currently uh, independent uh, in using a manual wheelchair. Um, other miscellaneous things of his history that may be relevant is he has a colostomy, he has a stage four uh, pressure injury, which is currently healing, um, no significant lower extremity spasticity, and no significant edema. So in addition to kind of wanting care for his general spinal cord injury, a couple of his questions for me was, you know, can I start participating in using a standing frame? Um, and he also wanted to discuss his bone health. So I went through um, my screening with looking at his risk factors um, for osteoporosis and found that he did not have secondary causes that I was aware of, high-risk medications, no family history of osteoporotic fractures, no history of prior fragility fracture, um, and did not uh, uh, drink alcohol significantly. So in terms of my next step regarding his bone, uh, we sent him for a DEXA scan. Um, and uh, in terms of looking at the radius, uh, again, an area of bone above his, his spinal cord injury, we uh, saw that his Z-score here was 0.4, um, uh, so within the normal range. 
However, uh, when we began to look below his level of injury, uh, we saw that at the hip, his Z-score was much lower, negative uh, 2.2. And then taking into, uh, and then I would think about his other risk factors, like his motor complete injury and paraplegia. Using the criteria that Craven described, he's kind of borderline. Um, uh, He doesn't necessarily meet the three additional risk factors, um, but we're definitely seeing significant bone loss below his level of injury. And then looking a little bit more uh, at the knee, we can see here that his uh, bone mineral density at the knee was uh, 0.8 on uh, on the right and uh, and on the left. And um, so this is above that uh, fracture uh, 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 threshold. So um, overall, with this patient, what did I do? So in terms of standing frame, I cleared this patient to participate in a standing frame. The risk of fracture with a standing frame hasn't really been described, but it isn't something that we necessarily see all the time. We definitely think clinically the risk of fracture is much higher when somebody is reciprocally loading their, their bones, not just uh, standing. Um, and weighing the risks and benefits, I thought that the potential benefits of the standing frame in terms of his quality of life, um, improving range of motion, offloading his sacral wound, and maybe helping with his bowel function outweighed the potential risks of fracture. Um, And then overall, in terms of his bone health, um, we discussed that he is already starting to show signs of bone loss below his level of injury, um, discussed the potential for supplementation. um, But however, at this time, I didn't necessarily recommend a referral to endocrinology to start treatment with a medication. In the future, I hope that might be something that we can do. But in this case, uh, given the literature, which we're not going to go into right now, I didn't think that was warranted. And um, also in the future, I'm really excited about maybe the potential role in a patient like this of using an exoskeleton or FES to help maintain their bone health. All right, we'll do one more case. Um, So uh, the next case is a 47-year-old female with T10 Asia Impairment Scale uh, C paraplegia um, who was injured quite a while ago in 1987. Um, Initially, she ambulated. um, However, um, more recently, uh, she's only been using a manual wheelchair and hasn't been upright or standing, uh, using a standing frame in approximately the last 12 years. Uh, She also has a history of breast cancer um, uh, in the status post-radiation and mastectomy. Uh, uh, She has a left metatarsal fracture sustained about two years ago, uh, and the cause of that fracture really is unclear. Um, And she's also recently postmenopausal, so quite a few other things in the mix. Um, Similarly to our last patient, uh, this patient presented to my clinic um, and was interested in um, perhaps restarting using the standing frame and uh, interested in perhaps uh, using the FES bike and overall wanted to discuss her bone health. Um, So then again, looking at the table, I looked at her risk factors, didn't see too much. um, uh, Well, uh, potentially um, uh, now her postmenopausal state. um, And then what to do with the uh, metatarsal fracture, it was really unclear. Was that um, uh, a fragility fracture or not? I think this is what we tend to see in clinic all the time. Yes, there's these great algorithms, but do our patients fit exactly? Not all the time. Um, So we went and uh, we got a DEXA scan on her, um, and we saw that uh, at the radius, um, her T-score was uh, negative 0.3, so within the normal limits. 
Um, however, when we looked uh, at her hip, we can see significant uh, bone loss. So if you look in the highlighted area, um, the T-score for her uh, left hip is negative uh, 3.4. Um, and uh, this meets criteria for osteoporosis for a postmenopausal um, woman with spinal cord injury. Then when we went to look at the knee, um, Chris was actually not even able to get a reading on the right knee because there was such a lack of bone density there. It was completely washed out. Um, and when he did look at the left knee, the um, bone mineral density was uh, 0.5, so below that fracture threshold of 0.6. So a little bit different conversation that I'm having with this patient compared to the previous one. Um, I'm a little bit more hesitant to recommend a standing frame in this patient, um, but wouldn't completely rule it out uh, necessarily, um, but really have to have a talk with the patient about the risks and benefits. When I did that with the patient, she felt that the risks outweighed the benefits, so ultimately did not pursue moving forward with use of the standing frame. Um, this patient would not be someone that I would consider to be a candidate for use of the exoskeleton. And again, use of FES, I think I would be more hesitant in this case uh, as well. In terms of her bone health, again, could, could discuss supplementation. Um, I counseled significantly about her risk of fractures, common causes, and what to do if she thought she sustained a fracture, um, and also um, referred to endocrinology um, to consider medications. Uh, but again, the literature supporting that right now is, is somewhat limited. And then I know we're out of time, but I have just one last case I just want to quickly summarize to you. So this is an 83-year-old um, with a history of chronic uh, paraplegia with a recent uh, functional um, decline um, and hasn't been ambulatory since 2010. And currently, even though he had strength in the past, has no anti-gravity strength in his lower extremities. Um, he's had a lot of recent issues with cellulitis, recurrent lower extremity edema, and lots of falls with multiple prior fragility fractures. And he presented to my clinic saying, Doc, I really would like to return to standing and walking. Um, so this is an example of a case for me that um, although we can get great information from a DEXA scan, I didn't need a DEXA scan in this case to help me make my clinical decision. You know, I didn't think that, you know, he's going to be a household or a community ambulator given his current strength. I thought we was extremely high risk of another fracture. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, so based on that, that was my recommendation. Um, however, um, he wasn't necessarily buying my recommendation, so we went ahead and we did um, a DEXA scan to help with the counseling piece. Um, and then in the end, what we ended up doing, coming to an agreement uh, where with him understanding the risks, uh, we transitioned to him using a standing frame because he really thought it would improve his overall quality of life, um, but we held off on more uh, standing and attempts to ambulate. And for me, this was a really great example of, you know, needing to try and balance my medical knowledge and uh, wanting to do the best for my patients, along with my patients' uh, overall aut autonomy for their health care and their quality of life, and trying to come to some sort of mutual agreement. So thank you guys so much for your time. For more information about Kessler Foundation and our researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.